The Future Works, a podcast for workforce professionals, hosted by me, Melinda Mack. I, I like to think that the time we are in right now is an era of a great reckoning. Welcome to this edition of the Future Works Podcast. We had to take a short break, but we're back with the exciting topic of worker cooperatives. We're now in February of 2021, and a lot has happened since the last podcast. Joe Biden is now the president of the United States, and as it stands, workforce development continues to be low on the priority list for Congress and the president alike, especially as we're starting to negotiate the next stimulus package. Here in New York, we're also still fighting to keep workforce dollars in the budget. Granted, we're still in the midst of a national pandemic and rolling out the COVID vaccine is continuing to provide challenges across the board, but we're also continuing to get shaky news about the labor market. People are suddenly waking up to the fact that women have been disproportionately impacted by the downturn, coining a new phrase called she-session, as all of the job losses in December were women, and another 80%, or 375,000 nationally, were women as well in January. Women are dropping out of the labor market for lots of reasons, but as we discussed on the podcast in the past, as more and more workers of color or those in low-paying work are losing employment or struggling to return to jobs, we have to get creative about how we create opportunities and good opportunities and jobs for New Yorkers and Americans alike. We've seen countless data sets that show people in middle and high income jobs are able to go back to work and work from home, but lower income and essential workers are not. So today I'm excited to have with us a longtime friend, Rebecca Lurie from the City University of New York, who'll be joining us to actually talk about worker cooperatives and how they're part of the solution. If you're unfamiliar with worker cooperatives, they're considered to be values-driven businesses that put workers and community benefit at the core of their purposes. And unlike traditional companies, worker members at these cooperatives participate and receive part of the profits, they have oversight, they often manage the enterprise, and they use far more democratic practices in terms of how they actually think about and manage and grow the business. The model really has been proven as an effective tool for creating and maintaining sustainable jobs, generating wealth, improving quality of life, and also thinking about community and local economic development, particularly for people who lack the access to business ownership and sustainable work. And so with that, I'm going to kick off the show and turn us over to our conversation with Rebecca. It's so great to be with you. Um, in many ways, old friends. I have years of working. For years I worked at the Consortium for Worker Education, and I came out of the Carpenters Union as as a carpenter, and then worked in apprenticeship. But as I moved on, I ended up at CUNY, the City University of New York, at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, where I started something called Community and Worker Ownership Project to explore worker co-ops as solutions for more justice at work. So for folks who are unfamiliar with the phrase, what is a worker co-op? So I'm going to say a few things about that, because I think what's important is it's it's ancient in many ways. It harkens back to how people always worked, which was more of a collaborative and takes in people as the center of the business and says, we are members. It takes the notion of membership into the center of the business. Fundamentally, it's one worker, one vote. 
There are other kinds of co-ops that people know of housing co-ops or consumer co-ops like food co-ops or REI, producer co-ops like farms, credit unions. But the fundamental thing they each have in common is whatever the class of member is, they get equal votes to the next member. It's not more, you have more stock, you get more votes. And that's what turns it on its side from our traditional capitalist system of ownership. Well, and yes, as we've talked about in the past, you know, the economic, harsh economic realities that I think many of us have worked to sort of, you know, circumvent or change in the last decade or two decades, or really since the beginning of time, I think at this point, right, the pandemic has laid bare all of the economic realities of that. Um, in sort of your mind, how do you think worker co-ops in some ways are a part of the solution to really having a more just economy where there is more ownership for the worker in terms of the, and more stake in many ways around a business or how a business's trajectory sort of is playing out in our local economies? I love the question and I could go on for hours. So hold me back if I go too far. But <laughs> I, I like to think that the time we are in right now is an era of a great um, reckoning. So George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, the pandemic, climate change, which is sort of undergird so much of uh, the environmental injustices. And then you have, you know, generational poverty because of generational uh, discrimination. All of this has added up. And more and more, there's, I think, a shared narrative of what caused this. And so what I like to think is that there was really a system that made it um, winners and losers, and that was okay. Um, under, I mentioned earlier capitalism, but we can really talk about that, that there are the rights of winners and losers, just that there was the right to own slaves, people as slaves, ridiculous, right? So, so then there's just years and years of injustice. And now we're looking at um, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion in every business, how we might heal that. I've heard someone put J in that DEI uh, equation and call it JEDI, and J is for justice. And how do we really start to think about justice in our desire to be equitable and diverse and inclusive. We have to make up for past sufferings, but the suffering is in people's souls. It's how they walk around. So if you have a worker owned business um, and you want everybody to have a voice because you say one worker, one voice, and some people are not comfortable speaking up, then you have to begin to make up for that loss or that suffering that I refer to as a generational suffering. So, or trauma, it might be another way to look at it. And there's a lot of psychologists now that look at where does trauma play out when we interact so poorly with one another. So part of it is really creating a safe place of belonging, it goes back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? So as you look at when people feel like they genuinely belong, but also genuinely heard. So sometimes to become genuinely heard, you have to do some real active listening. And how does that start to play out in a business? In a cooperative, there's, there's a value system of caring for each other that's fundamental. And that is a shift than only looking at that one bottom line of the return on the investment this week, this month, this quarter, this year. And so it says, how do we build the business around? And sometimes they refer to the triple bottom line. I like to use the three E's for equity, for the people, for ecology, for the planet, and for um, the economy. And how does this work economically? So you have to pay attention to all that. If the bottom line of dollars means that people aren't gonna get paid on Friday, you better believe everyone's gonna to wanna to talk about that bottom line and what can we do differently? But you wanna make sure people have knowledge enough to make 
to be part of those discussions and language access and understanding a balance sheet. Like that, that's a very interesting thing to people really understand what makes the finances of the business run. Yeah, it's so interesting, even as you're describing that, I think about, you know, again, sort of where I grew up and thinking about the local economy and the town that I grew up in. I grew up in Western New York and like the stuff that I learned in school, none of that stuff would have ever prepared me if I left high school and was entrepreneurial to run a small business. I mean, just navigating some of the really difficult rules and regulations, depending on the sector or industry, depending on the community you live in. And as you described, sort of the economic justice related to access to capital to be able to grow or expand a business, as well as just even navigate some of the really difficult regulations, you know, in some ways, like there's such a value of bringing together a bunch of smart people to figure this out together who have common principles and a common idea and a common set of values, but then also to really think about how you grow community wealth using something like this could be really amazing. Um, And it brings me back to the very first time I heard of worker co-ops. I lived in Sunset Park in Brooklyn, and this was over 10 years ago now. And at that point, there was a a co-op that was growing of house cleaners, women who predominantly spoke English. And it was meant to be sort of a way to be able to share the work, to really think about how they expanded their own access to opportunity. And I just remember at the time thinking like, man, this is such a cool and smart idea. But I also don't know what other sectors this has transitioned to. Where You sort of talked a little bit about it in your intro. Where are we seeing co-ops flourish? And where are we seeing really sort of no opportunity yet for co-ops to expand or people sort of people are on the edge of thinking about it. Right, you touched on so much. I'm gonna um, come back to one aspect you spoke about, which is like policy and legislation and how do we set the environment? We'll come back to that. That you mentioned, um, Cise Puede is the co-op you mentioned. It was started with 12 members and now has over a hundred. Um, why that is successful is because it's a low capital intensive business. So you want to look at businesses so that might not take a lot of capital to get started if you've got a lot of poor people coming together to start it. Center for Family Life had a workforce development program. They still do, but a very traditional one. And women were coming in and someone was helping them write their resumes. Most of the conversation happened in Spanish. That was their first language. And one woman or two women said, our resumes, we're never going to get a job like that. And rather than saying, no, just do it. That's what everybody has to do, which often it's like a deliverable. Um, the, the manager, the, the, the teacher of the, the session said, well, how do you get work? She used the appreciative inquiry model and said, well, what does work in your community? And that model of asking them what worked turned it around a little bit and realized they all were doing this housekeeping. What would make it better might be having a shared back office collectively doing it. They, by using a query of what already works for you, they were able to expand the answer. And rather than develop resumes, they developed a business and they developed a cooperative business. And now it's over hundred and it's replicated all over New York right now. We have a lot of cleaning companies. We have a lot of childcare companies, um, a lot of home care. So what happens is that service industry that doesn't require a whole lot of machinery and rental spaces, can, can work for sort of some early adaption, early entry. But I wanna differentiate two, two different ways that companies become co-ops. This is a startup model. A few people come together and start a co-op and it's important and very important for the reasons I just said, access, language, uh, you know, collective solutions. It's also ancient um, and looking um, at reconstruction 
a lot, there was a lot of black co-ops that started because people had nothing but each other and they figured that out. So that's important for the startup model, but there's also an important model that we should be looking at, which is conversions. And conversions is taking existing businesses and converting them to cooperatively owned. And because we have what is sometimes referred to as the silver tsunami, the aging out of uh, workers in our society because the boomers are, are aging out of work, um, <clears throat> owners are aging out. And statistically in America, there's not enough buyers for the small fam for the small family run or small firms, just not enough buyers. So how can we really think of some ways to help these companies convert to sell to their workers? That's a combination of interest, policy support, financial support, education support. So people understand what would it mean if I now become an owner? What are all those things? What they need might be the same thing people in Cisse Puede need, but they entered from a different place. They already had years in the company. They may even have a pension with that company. The company may have been run with an owner and their family doing all the, off, all the books over the kitchen table at night. And now they wanna convert it to their workers. Is it substantial enough? So the conversion is one aspect and startup is another. And it's important for us to understand similar and different needs. It's interesting. I, I understand that there are new financial tech companies coming into this space, financing some of those conversions. It's just, it's interesting in some ways that someone, there's a whole sector that's probably going to make money on that, that conversion, um, but also a different sort of process to act, to open up access to capital to make sure that that conversion is successful and well-funded for employees. So people are set up for the best of the best potential outcome. But I'm interested in your take on that because in some ways it almost seems like an ambulance chaser, like sort of scooting in in the back, creating a solution and creating financing and funding, mainly because traditional lenders haven't stepped up, the, up to the plate to really do this effectively. And I'm just interested to hear what your thoughts are. That's so interesting that you, you mentioned the ambulance, ambulance chaser, which is a little bit of like following the crises as they occur, but we just have to get a little bit ahead and say, this is gonna keep occurring. So how do we lay some of the groundwork and the ecosystem to make this more conducive? I think back of the Warren Act, and I don't know when that got passed, but New York State, it's now if a business is gonna go out of business, they have to within I think 90 days, maybe it's 30 days notify. And, and certain things kick in through the Department of Labor for that workforce. Well, what if we had a right of first refusal that when a company was getting ready to, to think about leaving, that there were some government supports to help them think about that strategically, the technical assistance that would be needed for that business. So right of first refusal is one of the things we wanna look at. I've, I've heard of some legislation in, um, in San Francisco of a legacy, a legacy fund and it's a landlord business arrangement that if a business has been in their place for a period of time, the landlord could um, get some tax benefits by doing a legacy lease so that the company stays. A lot of this is about you know, not hollowing out our main streets. How do we keep local businesses local? And it becomes an interest when you look at the three E's you're looking at ecology, which is really the community and say, how do we actually invest in our communities? Not just the business with the highest stakes of return every quarter, but how about the one that's giving back to the community and having their dollars uh, with that multiplier effect make a yeah. difference in the community and have some legislation that supports that. It's so interesting though, because like as you raise this, like the traditional economic development model 
as I have learned over the over the decades of this work, really is around recruitment and retention is always there, but it is such a sidebar, <laughs> you know. And it's so interesting because as you're describing this, the ecology, this E of ecology, how critical it is to really think about the retention of good paying jobs and opportunity for people to be able to grow in positions that they already exist in. Because you know, often we're going out of state to recruit people to come to New York or come to upstate New York in particular. When in reality, like what about the people who live there? <laughs> you know, the people who chose us have chose us their whole lives. How do we make sure we're growing, keeping their good jobs there? Um, I think it's, it's so interesting to think about some of these models and using tools like the WARN Act and thinking about like, is there a shift that we can make that would allow for some flexibility or change that would actually better benefit the worker because it is bizarre. You get this letter again, if you're a workforce board, you get this letter that sort of says there are these layoffs and it triggers all of this stuff, which is mostly just communicating on uns unemployment insurance benefits. Um, very rarely is it anything around retention of that business. Cause right. to be honest, honestly, after they file the warrant, that's probably like the last thing somebody does <laughs> before the right. business, the business goes out of business. Right. Um, especially during the financial services downturn in 2007, 2008, there was, I mean, we were getting, when I worked for the New York City Board, my gosh, 20, 30 a day. And it wasn't just financial services. It was all the restaurants around Lehman Brothers and others that were going out of business. And it was just really shocking in terms of our ability to have any tools to respond. Right. So it's so it's, creative to think about those kinds of ideas. Yeah, it can't be a response to the business that's failing because the it's time for the business to fail. It has to be a response to a business that should thrive because the community and our towns, our municipalities, our states and our nation needs those businesses to stay. And so there has to be, you know, and it is a, a public-private kind of partnership. Um, there, there, um, in 2018, the Small Business Administration um, now has something called the Main Street Employee Ownership Act. Nothing happened with it yet, but it's in place at the SBA. And we could be exploring that to say, how do we trickle that back to the local municipalities? Also procurement preferences. We want certain businesses to stay, but what obligation is the government, local and more broadly, making to procure from those businesses? Just like we have MWE preference for purchasing uh, goods and services, maybe we can have a cooperative sec section in that kind of procurement preference that says when it's cooperatively owned, when a company is owned and run by the people in the community, we care because it's gonna strengthen the economy of that community. So it really lets us, and, and the reason I started answering um, our conversation speaking to, I think we're in a great reckoning. When we really look at what's before us right now, like what this, what 2020 gave us, I think was much clearer understanding that everything is connected and we're failing in just about every area. So how do we think about shifting and not just shoring up, but rebuilding some fundamental tools? And I think metrics matter here because we look at a lot of metrics for evaluating our workforce development programs, You know how many people were hired, at what rate. But what if we had a broader metric that took in those three E's, so to speak, right? And looked at equity as a sector of metrics and also the ecology, the community, the earth, the people, the, the neighborhood. We, want, we don't want empty main streets. I was in Liberty, New York um, during the holidays I don't want to say this, I don't know if, well, it's, it's a shameful truth. There was a huge um, 
I guess you might call it like a banner, like a, like the painting of a billboard, like it was the size of a billboard, but it was in front of a, of a building that was empty. And the what it was, was a picture of people lining up to go into the movie theater. But there was no movie theater there anymore. It was a picture. And if our main streets become pictures of what they ought to be, shame on us. And if we could really attract people to come to movies, theaters in Liberty, New York, wouldn't that be great? But all of this, what businesses are needed? That I often say an economy simply is the production and distribution of the stuff that we need. It's not qualified, it just is. It, we, we need stuff, we move stuff and we get it to everybody. The qualifiers, we live in a capitalist society that measures a certain return and not a broader return. But if we had a cooperative economy and we actually try to perpetuate this into all the different things we measure and value, we can get to some interaction of an economy that, that matters. So you drill down into the actual, that's a big idea, right? These are big, big ideas for big solutions. But the small effort in each business, when I go to work each day, if I am valued more and next to my black and brown brother and sister and non-gender conforming person, they're valued more. And if each one of us sort of can show up and value each other more, we begin to heal each other in a deeper way. And if in the course of that event, we are producing something that is needed in our society, whether it's home care or cleaning or jewelry or um, food and, and, and greens, apples, we're producing stuff people need and we're getting it out and we're making a living at the end of the day, but we've done more than made a living. We've, yeah. we've built our own efficacy, our own self-actualization. You know, it, you're sort of hearkening back, I think for me and this we hear often, you know, things where it was a, a simpler time back then. I mean, again, we all know it was not a just or equal time and everyone had access to opportunities in vastly different ways. But there is something to be said about the way the economy was structured 50 years ago. And it was much more of a community-based Main Street feel where Liberty New York was hopping, you know, Main Street was hopping. And it was because everyone was looking out for their fellow employer and their fellow business. And they knew that it was important that the pharmacy was open and that the, the diner was open and the movie theater was open and the bookstore was open. Um, and there was a, a sense around what community investment looked like. And again, part of this is really thinking about how we expand opportunity so that all people have access to, to good jobs and, and in many ways creating their own destiny here with a occupation where they feel that they're creating value. And so it's for me, it's like so exciting to think about how this could be applied in so many different ways in so many different places. Um, right. And I really like the way that you phrased that this really is about like getting what you need in your community up and running. And childcare is such a good example because everyone is desperate for a new kind of childcare, desperate, because right. what we've got doesn't work, it's broken. Um, and it's super expensive to go out on and do it on your own um, and for many, many reasons. But I can also imagine this being applied in healthcare in so many different ways, having you know had, had more recent experiences with healthcare. I can imagine this in, oh my gosh, mechanics, you know, again, with the, this desperate shortage we have for skilled workers to do certain things, like how do you start to share the load? Um, and it becomes less about competition and more about truly cooperation, which is, again, talk about a recent, recent of the ethos of our labor market and our economy. It's so cool to think about it. So I'm wondering if you do have examples where this is working. 
um, where you're sort of seeing a huge movement where this where this idea of, of co-ops is taking hold. I know New York City has a number of examples, but outside of New York and New York State, are there other places that are totally rocking this? So, so you know, huge, let's see. There are a billion members of co-ops on the planet. One billion. Now, I'm a member of a few different co-ops, so I might count for three. But there, that number is so buried. It's such a buried treasure globally. But that comes to us from the International Cooperative Alliance that does this nationally, looks at, um, internationally, globally, looks at all this. So you have a lot of people working cooperatively. It's sort of a fundamental way people come together and figure it out. Um, some of the barriers in, in America are legislation that make it hard to make it work. So the reason New York City has been such a, a, a beacon of success with um, some of the largest worker co-ops in the country, well, the largest one is Cooperative Home Care Associates that was started in 1985, is partly more recently, the example we discussed of um, Cisse Puede and Center for Family Life, that model is being replicated and replicated in New York City because the city council put money on the table for technical assistance. That's, they didn't, they're not, they didn't change procurement rules, just they put money out for technical assistance. So a lot of the nonprofits, workforce development, financiers, uh, business development organizations could help this come along. It's also been done in the Bay Area significantly. And that's another area, like these are the two places that are like popped up. Uh, the Bay Area also has a history coming out of sort of a more left movement looking at Arismandi Bakery, that they started a chain of bakeries. And that really helped seed a lot of understanding about how this can work in other, other sectors. Construction historically has had a lot of home improvement companies or, or builders do this. Um, Massachusetts has uh, quite a few co-ops. So it's, you know, I wanna say it's not, it's, it doesn't burgeon because it's unrecognized. And part of the unrecognition is it doesn't have standard ways of measuring it. Even our corporate, uh, corporate uh, statutes vary from state to state. So, so companies may register as an LLC, but Apple operate like a co-op. In New York state, if you register as a co-op, it doesn't help with a lot of the needs. It, those laws were made for um, farming co-ops. So it looks different than if you were a worker co-op. So there's, there's a need to do some legislation and to sort of aggregate this differently. Um, there was, oh, I wanted to point out in, in the conversions, Ward Lumber in Jay, New York, 50 members, 50 workers in a conversion. Um, More Trees in Troy, New York is in the process of converting. And these are small companies. Queens, uh, the Child's Place in Queens is a conversion of about 50 workers who are becoming the worker owners of a, of a child care center. And what happens is you start to see how that, then another similar company in that sector might wanna do it. And now there's been learning for that. So another way to see growth is like that, oh, that will work for me, like that. And that's something we might wanna see across the state, like similar businesses, a lumberyard and a landscape company, like that. How do we think about that conversion for more of them? I also appreciate too that, you know, because in some ways the legislation or like the, you know, the, the political barriers that we have, that we've created, um, that seem to make some of this more difficult than is necessary, also means that it's much more difficult to identify and communicate where this is happening or where there are national or local best practices because like how would you suss them out if they're just an LLC and you didn't know 
Because it's not like in some ways, like people know what every worker owned co-op is. It's not like King Arthur flower, which proudly puts it on the side of each of their bags of flour, that they're a cooperative and were started as a cooperative. But I think the more that people understood that this wasn't an anomaly, that this is something that happens and is a successful way to pursue and to go about to go about their business, the more people you have interested in it. But also to your point, if you're a family run business and you're thinking about converting, you then know like, oh, I can call the guy. <laughs> And Troy, who did this and be like, how did you guys do this? Right. Versus it being something where it feels very far out of left field. And so it's, it's just interesting to, again, really think about the importance of making sure people know that this is a yeah. possibility yeah. Um, and providing in some ways more transparency around what needs to change in order to, in many ways, not harm any business, just open up opportunities for more, for more businesses. It doesn't harm business. It, yeah. If anything, you're bringing the wit of all the workers to the business, not everybody on a team makes all the decisions all the time. You still have hierarchical decision-making and you have roles and responsibilities. It's it's complex, but you know all systems are complex. I refer to it as an ecosystem that needs strengthening. So I think part of this is to understand what do we need in the ecosystem? And one of it is information and knowledge, right? Which I connect to education and training. And does every, can every workforce investment space where people come in looking for jobs or businesses go in looking for business services have added components of what is a co-op? Because if I'm, I remember I had a job training program I was running for people to learn baking and culinary skills. And we had to actually not Put, you know, it was competitive. A lot of people want to come into the training, but if they express that they wanted to own their own business, we, we screen them out because our positive outcome was getting them placed in a job. Well, actually, what if we screen them in and actually understand that the entrepreneurial spirit, uh, you pair a few of them and you give them training on how to start a business and they might be able to take the skills you train them in into a business or they bring a broader sense of skills to whatever, wherever they get hired to think about how do I, how do I help this company run? So education and training is one of piece of the ecosystem. And with, with that, it's also, I'm at the School of Labor and Urban Studies and we're putting together a certificate in this. So at the graduate level, people could like add to their credential and go out and promote it. And then there's really the financing and the technical assist, the kind of access to capital and technical assistance services for businesses that needs to be a certain bucket in that ecosystem. And there's something, uh, an organization called the Working World that is actually set up as a non-extractive financing company. And they work explicitly with co-ops and they do a lot of work in upstate New York, as does the ICA group, Democracy at Work Institute. And I can give you more of this we can attach in some way so people know like who to go to. Um, but this, so you have, if, if I look at the ecosystem, one is understanding financial needs, one is understanding education and training, and the third area is enabling legislation. And how do we really look at this differently? So whether it's the metrics for a workforce development organization to embrace this because they'll be counted positively for it, but how about the, the policies that help those businesses succeed like MWBE model, how do we look at a cooperative and say they're giving back to the community? They're keeping all that money and resource in the community and that matters. So a lot of our urban planning and, and regulation doesn't, isn't separate from what we decide to train in. It's about retention of businesses in our communities. Oh, it absolutely is. Like, I, you may know this, you may not. I, so my master's degree that I have is in urban and regional planning. And then I have one in public administration because there was nothing that was a workforce development 
credential. And as I went down the economic development path and really understood the importance of human capital in all of the decision-making around how places are built and how we sort of grow our economy, um, for me, it was always super frustrating that there was nothing, there wasn't really anything that took me down the path to help me understand how the labor market was connected. But what I appreciate, again, all those resources, we will, if, if you can put those in an email for me, we'll make sure that those are in the introduction and overview, um, or I can sort of do some subtext at the end of this to describe what those resources are. Um, the fact that we have all these structures that we can change, like CDFIs, I think would be an amazing way to sort of think differently about how you finance this model in local communities. Um, just recognizing that you can create relatively nominal funds that actually could transform and change sort of economic power and access in regions and communities. So with that, thank you for leaving me inspired today, Rebecca. There's so much more. I'll, I'll, I'll let you know there's, there is this national U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops. There's the New York um, Network of Worker Co-ops. There's a new economy coalition. There's these bodies that are thinking about this with us. And, you know, maybe you'll want to come back and get a certificate in cooperative education so that you can help push this further and further. We're, we're going to call it workplace democracy and community ownership. Oh, I love that. Well, I will tell you, now that I have officially paid off my student loans as of last year, I don't know if my husband will let me go to school anymore <laughs> because it got, it's just so crazy how expensive uh, higher education is. But to you that, to that, one of my classes, maybe be a guest speaker. And I can audit. I can audit some of them. Right. Yeah. Um, but I also think it goes back to really thinking about more that we can do true as a state association, any other ways that we can sort of communicate, make sure people are aware. Um, Help help people host lunch and learns on this type of topic. We're certainly game. And again, of course, I'm hoping that folks who are on listening to the podcast from other states are also looking into this. And I know Rebecca, her network runs deep, and so I'm sure she'd be more than happy to connect you with resources in your states as well. So with that, thank you so much, and I cannot wait to see how we transform New York State's economy. I love it, Melinda. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining the Future Works podcast. You can download previous episodes at www.niatep.org.